0: Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast again. Professor Seaskin, it's an honor to have you on. You are one of the most requested guests to have on again, so thank you for making the time. Well, uh,
1: it's my pleasure to be here. Um, And uh, today I want to speak about Messianism and the concept of a Messiah. So uh, let's face it, we pray the coming of a messiah every day. Uh, And uh, I want to argue that uh, Judaism's two greatest contributions to world civilization are, uh, first of all, monotheism. But second of all, this is going to sound funny, but uh, hear me out, uh, the idea of a future. Judaism is responsible in uh, in many ways for the concept of a future. Now, what do I mean by that? It isn't that, you know, all right, tomorrow is another day, and a day after that, and the week after that. Everybody had that. What Judaism gave us, and this is so important, is the notion that the future is open, may contain new and better possibilities. Uh, What Judaism gave us is the idea that we are justified in hoping for a better future than what we have. So when you really come down to it, uh, uh, what is belief in a Messiah? uh, It's the belief that no matter how bad things are now, this is not the way they have to be. And in the end, it's not the way they're going to be. So if I can put this in another way, uh, belief in the Messiah is the belief that the human situation is not tragic. Somehow or other, again, as bad as things may seem right now, somehow or other, we are justified in hoping and working for a better future for something different uh, than what we now have. And to understand how important this is, um, let me just refer to uh, to Dante. In Dante's Hell, uh, what is written over the passageway uh, to hell? And uh, what's inscribed is, abandon hope, all ye who enter. Okay? Now, what Judaism is telling us is we uh, shouldn't abandon hope. Uh, that this is an essential part of what it is to be Jewish in the first place. Uh, We're told, for example, uh, that in the death camps uh, in World War II, people were uh, led to to their death, and uh, many of them asserted, one of Maimonides' uh, principles, I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, though he may tarry, yet I believe and uh, I don't think they thought there was going to be some magical change, you know, all of a sudden, you know, their situ- uh, somebody would come in and rescue them. I, I, that, that trivializes it. What I do think is that this idea that uh, this was not the end result of human existence gave them some measure of dignity as they faced their death. And uh, belief in the Messiah, I think, has given Jews some measure of dignity throughout our history. And let's face it, we've we've encountered a lot of tragedy. But but again, it's not the end. Now, there is no reference to a messianic future in the Torah. So let's start there. Um, In fact, uh, a lot of people don't realize this if you think about the end of the Torah, Uh, The Torah pretty much ends on a sour note. Uh, Moses has been leading people through the desert, and they've been provoking God and disobeying Moses uh, the whole way. Uh, And in the end, uh, when God says to him, you know, behold, you're about to sleep with your fathers, uh, and if you're about to die, Moses, you can't enter the promised land. And God gives him a picture, and we would hope that picture would be, you know, people enter the promised land and return to God and celebrate it. But in fact, what God says is that the new generation is going to be a disaster. Uh, If you know the passage, Deuteronomy 31, God says they're going to provoke me even more. I'm going to hide my face from them, and every conceivable disaster is going to befall them. They're going to turn to idolatry. Uh, they're nothing but a horn. I mean, the, 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 the rhetoric is terrible. That's more or less how the Torah ends. And that's why it's so important that by the time we get to the prophets, the great literary prophets, what they're saying is, no, this, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something. We can't just have this end of this, this terrible end of the term. There's got to be something better than this. And that's why they give us the idea of what they call the days of the Lord, uh, which are coming. It's going to set everything right. Or if you will, uh, the coming of a Messiah. Uh, For those who don't know, a Messiah just means the one who's anointed. Uh, Kings and uh, priests were anointed with oil uh, in the angel. In fact, even to this day, King Charles III, if you watch the coronation, was anointed with oil. So uh, the uh, Messiah, Mashiach, just means uh, the Holy One. Um, Jeremiah uh, says, surely the days are coming uh, when the Lord will raise up uh, for David a righteous branch, He shall reign as king, the Messiah will be a king, deal wisely, shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. All right, what is David doing here? Well, uh, God had made a covenant with David, and uh, David's kingdom, uh, in effect, was going to go on forever. And so uh, uh, the Messiah is supposed to be a descendant of David that will come from the house of David. Uh, what is the messiah going to do well we get a variety of uh of suggestions uh most important the messiah will restore sovereignty to israel uh uh, if we're under the domination of a foreign power which we were babylonia persia rome uh the messiah will restore sovereignty the messiah will rebuild the temple By the time we get to uh, uh, rabbinic and pharisaic literature, Messiah will bring about the resurrection of the dead. Uh, The Messiah uh, will be preceded by a cataclysm where the mountains will shake and the rivers will dry up and there may be a final battle of good against evil, uh, the battle of Armageddon uh and uh, eventually all of this the evil will be wiped out and uh what will come in is a kind of earthly paradise well that's an awful lot uh looked at philosophically the the belief or the hope for a better future belief in the coming of messiah gives us a kind of paradox it's been said I think, with justification, uh, that the belief in the coming of a messiah is either Pandora's box or the elixir of life. Okay, now which one, why why is this uh, uh, so uh, paradoxical? Well, it's the elixir of life again, because if we abandon hope, we've got nothing. We abandon hope, We all we have is despair. Then we have to say, as bad as things are, they're not going to get better, and there's no point in working and, and uh, uh, devoting ourselves uh, uh, to straightening things out. And that, that, that uh, to some extent, uh, is sort of the, the nadir of human existence, I would say. There's no hope whatsoever. On the other hand, why is it Pandora's box? And the answer is because historically, uh, messianic fervor has led to a great deal of tragedy. Uh, If you know about Jewish history, then uh, you know there were two revolts against the Roman Empire. Uh, Both of them uh, turned out to be utter disasters Uh, In the second revolt, uh, there was a guy uh, named Bar-Kosiba, whose name was changed to Bar-Kochba, which means son of the star, Uh, no less than authority. Rabbi Akiva proclaimed him the Messiah. Uh, uh, We have revolted against Rome once. It didn't go well, and we revolted again, and the Romans decided this time they're going to teach us a real lesson and more or less pursued a scorched earth policy. Uh, Jerusalem destroyed, thousands of crucifixions of people led off to slavery. So um, in the ancient world, messianic fervor gave rise to two utterly disastrous revolts. And let's be honest, it gave rise to a rival religion. Uh, because a good portion of Judaism thought that uh, uh, Jesus uh, uh, was the uh, Messiah. In fact, uh, Mashiach in Hebrew, when translated into Greek, uh, is what is Christos. He was the, he was the Christ. He was the promised Messiah. And uh, I would say that uh, practically every age, uh, Judaism has been beset by false messiahs. Uh, In many cases, it's led, as I say, it's led to death and and destruction and disaster. In some cases, it's led to a great deal of disappointment. Um, Shabbatai Tzabih converted to Islam uh, in order to save his life. Uh, So the problem is this. when. The chips are down when things are terrible is when we are most susceptible to folly. And believe me, it, there is a lot of folly in our history, unfortunately. Uh, on the other hand, it's when the chips are down that we most need hope for a better future. So that's why it's been called both Panthora's Box and uh, the Elixir of Life. Now, uh, faced with this history, what did the rabbis do? Uh, The rabbis, uh, early rabbinic literature, let's say they realized they had been burned badly. Again, two revolts and a rival religion. And so I would say that in the early part of rabbinic literature and the Mishnah, there's a tendency to sort of downplay the importance of the Messiah. They, They can't get rid of it. They know that. And yet it's in the profits. And again, it's the elixir of life. They can't just erase it. On the other hand, they know the price that's been paid and it was terrible. And uh, so uh, there's a tendency now to kind of, uh, I would say, either ignore it or diminish its importance. Uh, There's always the question of uh, what is the Messiah going to be? What, what is the model we have in mind uh, for a, a Messiah? Is it going to be a warrior uh, in the image of Bar Kokhba? Someone establishes authority and throws out the domination of a foreign power? Or is it going to be a Torah scholar? Well, these don't always go together. Uh, so what exactly are we praying for here? Um by the time you get to the Gomorrah, uh, there starts speculation comes back uh uh to uh uh messianic spe- I was a messianic speculation
2: it comes back. But there is no settled doctrine. Uh Professor, may I, yeah. may I ask? So you say in the Mishnah there's a tendency to downplay for our viewers to
1: you're right. It doesn't seem to me to be of central importance. I'm making a generalization. Uh-huh.
2: The, Mishnah, the Mishnah is relatively silent about it.
1: That's right. That's, that would be my claim.
2: Uh-huh. And and if I'm understanding the direction you're going to go, it sounds like every generation has their own unique relationship to the Messiah based on uh, mitigating factors that they're going through. That's, That's a History so- It's a role. Aha. Uh-huh. So they so, so so the so the so the Tanas the the, the Mishnah since it, it had a very bad experience, fresh bad experience, the tendency is going to be to downplay. That's right. Gotcha. Thank for, you. For good reason. You have to
1: understand what these people it was the the, the memory is still fresh in their minds, uh, yep. what happened. Uh by the time you get to later rabbinic uh, literature, the spectrically in Sanhedrin uh speculation starts to come back. All right. When is the, the prayers for the messiah are there? When is the messiah gonna come? A when everything is just so rotten, I mean it just things just reach the absolute pits of what human beings are capable of, God is going to look down and say, I better do something drastic. I think I'm going to send the Messiah. So that's one theory. Uh, Another theory is, no, it's the opposite. It's when we finally get our act together. It's when we repent. It's when we start uh, doing justice to the observation of Shabbat and observing the commandments. Uh, That we will be, in effect, rewarded. The Messiah will be, in effect, the icing on the cake. God will look down and say, well, now these people really deserve uh, to enjoy their messianic future. And uh, therefore, this is the time to uh, send uh, the Messiah. There's a theory that says the Messiah has already come uh the messiah has has come, and basically now the only thing that's really important uh are basically observance of the commandments and good deeds and all of this messianic speculation and everything is uh really to, beside the point um that
0: that's that's Hillel who says that that basically Messiah came it's over
1: uh Rav says that too uh basically all the messiahs have come and gone what remains are fulfillment of the commandments and good deeds and you can understand why that might be what you know somebody looking back on all of this could uh, say that there is a old tradition actually which i kind of like uh the messiah is here right now which is we don't recognize him messiah is a leper uh, outside the gates of Rome, bandaging his wounds. It's just that we're too occupied with uh, other things uh, to recognize that uh, he's he's here. Well, uh, if you therefore, if you say, what is the what is the rabbinic doctrine on the Messiah? There isn't one. It's it's all over the lot. Uh, and uh, of course again the prayers are there but exactly what are we praying for Uh, unclear at least if we stick with the rabbinic literature thus far and um, of course this leads uh, opens the door to what I do which is theology and philosophy because there's a lot of stuff that has to be clarified do you just leave this ambiguous as it is or do you try to introduce some clarity to this so i would say if you look at uh, what people have attempted to do to clarify the doctrine you have basically five possibilities so the first i'm calling inflation okay if you're an inflationist what you say is look Uh, Here's a long list of what the Messiah has to do. Uh, Restore sovereignty, rebuild the temple, raise the dead, uh, uh, all the rest of this stuff. And unless all of this has happened or unless there's a final battle of good against evil and all of the other prophetic uh, images, uh, we're just going to have to wait. So what you do, you raise the bar of what the Messiah Uh, has to do uh, so high, and what that does is it gives you uh, the right to reject false messiahs. So uh, did Jesus uh, restore sovereignty? Uh, uh, No, uh, he did not. Uh, Did Jesus bring about a final battle of good against evil? No, he did not. You can reject Jesus. You can reject Shabbatai Tzibbi. You can reject uh, Frank. You can reject all of the false messiahs in every age who've come along because they didn't cross the bar because the bar is uh, uh, so, so difficult to cross. And therefore, what you say, we have to wait. And in fact, what you say is waiting or patience is a virtue. Uh, you should pray and simply the messiah will come in God's good time. And uh, we just simply have to wait. Uh,
2: professor, um, sorry to interrupt. That's all uh, right. So you mentioned earlier that uh, some of the rabbinic attitudes in the Talmud uh, involved, uh, you know, like a cataclysmic event and all that. That's right. So are you trying to say that these sages in the Talmud that presented that idea of Messiah, were actually engaging in in in, in, in inflating the Messiah? Yeah, they're raising, I mean, they look, they have prophetic. That was their motivation passages. in what they said? Yeah, they
1: have prophetic passages to back them up. And uh, they can say, for example, uh, uh, actually, as some of them did at the time, uh, Bar Kokhba was not the Messiah, he was a false messiah. Jesus was a false, so you've got a long list now of people who didn't do all of this, and you can reject them as false messiahs. That's the advantage of the inflation. Now, the inflationist position, though, let's face it, uh, is relying uh, somewhat heavily on the miraculous, uh, on the things that are really beyond a normal human
2: control so those sages saw what happened and basically tried to instill a certain uh, direction of messiah to essentially assure that these things won't happen again yes gotcha
1: okay all right the other is deflation the opposite and the greatest uh, deflationist who ever lived in jewish history is moses maimonides uh, in the mission of Torah, he's very clear uh, that uh, don't expect miracles to happen. Uh, don't, this stuff is, uh, Messiah is not going to be called upon to perform miracles. Uh, what is the Messianic age going to be? It's going to be an age, yes, sovereignty will be restored, when Israel is at peace with its neighbors. And the great thing about peace is that we won't have to spend as much time preparing for war. We won't have to devote so much of our resources, both time and money, to war. And the great thing about that is we will be able to devote most of what we do to what we are really best suited for, uh, which is study. We're, we're, we're going to study the Torah, the Talmud, we're going to study science, we're going to study mathematics, we're going to study astronomy, and uh, uh, that's what the Messianic Age uh, is uh, all about. Well, says Maimonides, look, they're still going to be rich and poor. In the, it's not going to be an earthly paradise, as some people imagine. They're still going to be rich and poor. There's still going to be the sick. We're still going to have to care for the sick. Uh, you're still uh, uh, going to have to uh, help the poor. So all of this stuff the, 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 is, is going to be the same. The Torah will still be valid. Uh, again, we're going to do what we are best suited for, and that's perfecting our intellect. So I have to say, whenever I teach Maimonides, uh, I tell my students, If you want to see what the Messianic age, I mean, sitting on a college campus, if you want to see what Maimonides' Messianic age looks like when class is over, just go out and walk around campus. Because if he's right, the world will become a gigantic research institute. There will be libraries, there will be laboratories, there will be seminars, there will be teach-ins, there will be books. That's the Maimonidean idea. But there aren't going to be any miracles. Okay. That's so that's that's what I'm calling a
2: deflationary messiah. You know what's so interesting about about how you described the Rambam's vision of Mashiach, it's because if you and I'm sure you know the, the, the professor knows when you go through the Rambam's writings, there is a clear his entire his entire philosophy of life is essentially that life should be spent uh, learning and uh, uh, knowledge of God, knowledge of physics and metaphysics. And the knowledge is really what life was for the Ramam. That's right. Uh, and perfect- so really Mashiach is really just the realization of everything that he stood for, in a sense.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, his his account of the Messiah, uh, his uh, the best account of it, comes at the climax of the Mishnah Torah, it's the last book of the Mishnah Torah. And this is sort of, uh, I would say, his thematic and rhetorical climax. You know, now that you've got all of Jewish law uh, in front of you, uh, what is it going to lead to? And it's going to lead to, uh, he uh, thinks and hopes, uh, an age uh, when uh, a study of uh, not just of uh, what we would call sacred texts but but secular subjects math astronomy physics biology that's what we're going to do with ourselves instead of preparing for war
0: ironically he also mentions the reason for the destruction of the second temple was uh, that we were that we were involved in stupidity <laughs> like right, learning-
1: we gave up the study of the sciences and that's why we lost to the romans i don't think that's true but that's right. what he said well really also
0: we weren't weren't behaving like a normal sovereign would, in in preparing for war and strategy and all that that's
1: right too much superstition yes too much distraction okay number three marginalization which to some extent we've already discussed uh if you want to marginalize it what you say is uh, look observe the commandments uh help the poor help the sick help the bereaved and as far as messianism goes uh, it'll come when it comes uh so i i was once in a seminar and uh uh on messianism and a very noted jewish scholar basically said that said look uh okay we pray for it but uh it's still Judaism is and always has been and always will be a question of performance of the commandments and of good deeds. And uh, don't speculate, don't try to force God's hand. Uh, this is sort of the Mishnaic, uh, what we said, uh, and also some of the rabbis did this. They, they don't get rid of it, uh, but they don't make it central uh, to what they're doing. And uh, they see the dangers uh, uh that that have come from it historically number four and what i call internalization uh, the great jewish philosopher Emanuel Levidos said that all of these references to cataclysm and shaking of the earth and uh disruptive changes that, These all should be, in effect, understood as what's going on inside of you. It's you who, uh, if you understand correctly, are going to have a change. You're going to become a different person. You're going to become less selfish. You're going to uh, be more concerned with others, with helping others, with uh, giving your life to others. Uh, and this is in effect a kind of psychological uh, uh, cataclysm that's going to go. It's 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 not that mountains will shake and rivers will dry up. It's how much you will change uh, if you understand correctly what Judaism is really about.
0: It's a very Hasidic uh, view.
1: Yes, and it, well, he was heavily influenced by Hasidism, and at one point he says, "You know, look, the Messiah who is." I'm the Messiah. And I would be careful with this. Each of us, in effect, has a we might say a, the possibility uh, of achieving a kind of messianic perfection. If we take seriously uh, again what what the religion is asking us to do, uh, it's as if we're uh, uh, as if we. We, we It isn't that so much a historical uh, uh, disruption as, as a psychological. And finally, there's def- what I call deferral. I have to be careful here. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Herman Cohen. To understand Cohen's view of the Messiah, I'm going to have to take you back. To your high school algebra class uh, just very briefly okay so you remember your high school algebra class remember the kid you had a graph paper remember you had two axes uh, vertical and horizontal axis okay and remember sometimes if you graphed a function it would slope down and it would approach say the horizontal axis but never quite touch it or if you would have touch it, only at infinity. Right. keeps getting closer and closer and closer. Okay. Uh, Cohen used that to uh, understand the Messiah, that, that uh, human beings, are, at best, are on the pathway to perfection, but perfection is an infinite task. And humanity, then, and each of us individually, is embarked on an infinite task. We aren't going to achieve it in the sense that it's going to happen in historical time. It is something that we approach as a limit. Uh, we can uh, get closer, uh, but uh, in effect, no cigar. You you don't actually t- we don't actually touch the axis. Now the advantage of Cohen he gets rid of all the false messiahs. They're all uh, uh, and Cohen uh felt that uh, questions like is the messiah going to enter jerusalem through a certain gate you know uh, where is the messiah going to stand what is the messiah going to say uh, uh who is it? all of these questions now are uh are rejected
0: are uh, you familiar with uh Leibowitz's libowitz's stance
1: not entirely yes yeah, so
0: he you know he said in hebrew but he said uh Anima Minsha Mashiach uh, Yavo meaning that yeah. I believe that the Messiah will come forever, like for all time. Meaning, uh, meaning he, the moment you say he's here or he has an identity, then you know that person's a false Messiah.
1: That's Cohen, too. Yeah, it, it, you could it, Cohen's follower Stephen Schwarzschild my my great mentor, uh, used to say, Messiah will always be in the process of coming. It right. will never actually arrive.
0: will always be coming, yes.
1: Always be coming. Now, uh, people objected to that because, uh, well, the Messiah is never actually going to come. Then if the Messiah is always in the process of coming, uh, the Messiah is never actually going to be here. And what does that do to our concept of hope? Uh, so, you know, each of these positions has its strengths and uh, uh, weaknesses. Um, it raises the question though, I think, and this is a deep question, uh, Can are human beings capable of uh, getting themselves out of the moral and spiritual hole that they've created for themselves? I mean, just like uh, the new generation entering the Promised Land at the end of the Torah, God is so pessimistic about it. Are we capable on our own of getting out of this—the uh, uh, the war, the disease, the uh, crime, the deceit, the, the corruption—you know—or do we need a divine solution? Do we need something from heaven? Uh, we can't do it on our own. Uh, Now you can either say, look, let's be realistic Uh, over thousands of years. If we haven't done it, we can't, and we need somehow or other for God to step in some kind of divine uh, intervention uh, for this to happen. That's not my view. Uh, I I think it's a serious question. Uh, It's not the view that I take. Uh, So the view that I take, uh, I have a proof text for it, which I hope I can read uh, from Deuteronomy 30, an extremely famous passage. Let me just read the passage that is very relevant to the question of a Messiah or messianism. And uh, this is what what Moses says in uh, God's name, Deuteronomy 30. What I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. In other words, I think what he said, the, the, I take this to mean that the commandments are fulfillable. It may be hard to fulfill them, but the what God has asked of us is not too difficult for us or beyond our reach. It is not up in heaven that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven and get it and proclaim it so uh, we may obey it it's not beyond the sea, uh, that you will have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we will obey it. No, the, word, the uh, words of the Torah the, the, is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may do it. So I, I take this to mean, and I take this as a central position of Judaism. Not everyone agrees with this, but, um, I have put it to you that um, reaching, uh, satisfying what God has given us, and uh, uh, obtaining uh, uh, s- uh, re- redemption of of, of closing uh, the gap of, of of doing what what we have uh, said we were going to do at Sinai, it's not infinitely far out. That that was the Cohen view, and I don't. It's not something that we approach asymptotically. It can be done. We haven't done it, but we may not even be going in the right direction. I don't know, but it can be done. And the coming of a messianic age is something that we are capable of bringing about, I think, if we put our hearts to it. So if you say, what is my position? It's a modified deflation. As a Maimonidean, uh, I accept a great deal of the uh, deflation. Maimonides believed in the build rebuilding of the temple. I'm not sure I do. Uh, that would create a lot of other problems. And my favorite uh, rabbinic uh, precedent for this, this is my favorite position on the Messiah, uh, is, uh, is this. Uh, one sage says, the Messiah will come when all of Israel celebrates Shabbat two weeks running. All right, why well, do I like that so much? Well, one week, I mean, okay, you know, you might luck out or something. No, the, the reason I like it is because celebrating Shabbat two weeks running is, it, it seems to me, is exactly right. We can do it. Yeah, yeah, it, it it isn't asking for something that is so far beyond human reach that we have to, uh, you know, uh, need divine intervention to help us. We can't. We can all celebrate Shabbat two weeks run. It's not that hard to do. Let's face it. It's a day of rest. I mean, it's it's within our possibilities, Within human ability to celebrate shabbat two weeks running it just isn't that difficult now the other side of the coin don't bet your mortgage on it there is a realism here don't don't bet your mortgage on it Uh, in the one sense the coming of the messiah ever more than two weeks off Is it going to happen uh, by the end of June? I don't think so, but it could. Now, it's not that I believe that if we all celebrate Shabbat, somebody once asked me, what do you say? We all get together and celebrate Shabbat. What's going to happen? It's not that mountains will shake. It's not that I'm not looking for miracles. All I'm saying is that this is teaching us a lesson. And that lesson is, as I think Deuteronomy 30 is telling us, that perfection is achievable. It can be done. If we don't, it's our fault, not God's.
2: You, you know, Professor, I, uh, I read that part of the book when you mentioned this. That is actually my favorite part in the whole book because what hit me or what struck me with what you said in the book and just reiterated right now, that um, agada. Right of you know if you keep two right. Shabbats, Meshach's gonna come. Right. Has been so abused, has been so misunderstood, has been so uh, sensationalized, like as like you know as if the idea here is that by that that it's the, by keeping two Shabbats like magically now or whatever Shabbat is is gonna like you know I don't know uh, cre- create this energy and bring some magical Messiah down. I don't know. You know, people have so many strange things to say about that I that, but what you said was so perfect and like I I truly believe that that was the intent personally speaking that what you're trying to say is what they're telling us is hey it's reachable it's doable go and do it that's exactly it's amazing to me that in all my life and I've read so many commentaries on that and I've heard it being used in so many speeches and lectures and you know (laughs) when you said it I was like you know, sometimes the, the the best answer is the simplest one, really. So
1: yep. I just wanted to mention. I've that. said that too, in, in my synagogue. I've said that a few days Let's try it. I mean, what the heck? Our,
0: uh, our community actually, you know, there's a lot of communities that do the Shabbat project, right? So everybody yeah. tries That's, to. Shabbat. You have
1: to do it two weeks in a row. It's not going to hurt you. You may enjoy. You may even enjoy it. I mean, it it may lead to to something better. Let's try it, and we'll see exactly what happens. Uh, I don't see anything wrong with the attempt. Can't hurt. Can't hurt. Exactly right.
0: So, um, so the Maimonidean view, although it is definitely something that is it's realistic and it's a good thing, at the same time it also makes us more susceptible, to fall, in a way, to false messianism.
1: Yeah. That's exactly right. If you lower the bar, if you keep lowering the bar and saying we don't need miracles and so on and so forth, uh, then you don't really have the wherewithal to eliminate false messiahs because a false messiah uh, can simply say, all right, I didn't do this miracle or that miracle, but according to Maimonides, I don't have to. Now, uh, Maimonides did uh, sort of uh, get into an issue with the building of the Second Temple. Why? Because uh, the Torah, he thought, is valid for all times. It says that about itself. And uh, we don't do animal sacrifice because we don't have a place to do it in anymore. When the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, we gave up animal sacrifice and replaced it with prayer, study of the Torah, and good deeds. Well, if you rebuild the temple, and Maimonides admits this, you may not like it, but we would have to go back to sacrificing animals. Uh, As somebody who is extremely squeamish and tends to faint at the sight of blood, uh, I I don't want to see this uh but he does say uh, again this may be distasteful to you but uh in his principle he stuck to his principles and if the if the if there is a a a third temple there would be no uh principled reason not to sacrifice animals now uh again i don't want to see this and
2: that part of his position uh i just soon drop. Uh, Professor, may I may I try to help you out with this one? I would love it if you did. You'd be <laughs> okay. doing me an enormous favor. Okay. I, again, I'm I'm not saying what I'm saying is true, but uh, it's just an idea that I guess it's okay to float out. Um, the the problem with the temple. I, Everyone has something to say about this, or if cook even came and said that you know it'll be replaced with vegetation instead of animal sacrifice and some people say like, oh, that's not going to happen anymore and some people are insistent that it needs to happen and it's central for it to happen. there's always going to be arguments about this. But from a philosophical perspective, right, which is up your alley, <laughs> um, a benefit of having the temple, um, from and and I'm taking this from a bunch of things that I've read and learned and throughout the podcast that we've done you know I've learned a lot if we agree that idolatry is alive and well if we agree that um there's a lot of misplaced uh, uh you know people are praying at you know uh, graves people are are, are are using you know weird incantations and. Aparot. Aparot, and there's a lot of things that have substituted that um, the temple, right? That people, because they're drawn to that need of of um of worship in a way that's concrete, right? Which was the reason in the first place for the sacrifices. So it's been replaced by a lot of strange things. If we did establish a temple, and if we did, um, if we establish the temple, it would by default, eliminate all of these problems because now you have a centralized place of worship and you can't have an excuse to go do all these strange other worships anymore. So from a philosophical point of view, it would actually improve mankind. Uh,
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, that was the point in large part of the book of Deuteronomy was centralized worship uh, at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, you right, can so, own sacrifices that you can't, you can't. No more freelance sacrificing.
2: Uh, right, I'm just exchanging that with the freelancing that goes on today in in more modernized ways. We're not out of the woods just because it's not with, other, with animal sacrifice per se. Basically, gone, people
0: people today will argue that we're beyond that already. We don't need, we don't have those base instincts anymore or the tendencies towards those things. But the truth of the matter is. We've only just now now idolatry has become idolatry of the mind so it's still relevant um it's still something that we we have like mentioned mentioned the, the great worship Kappa wrote all these things people are they need that outlet still we haven't really people human beings don't really change by nature exactly, exactly.
1: Well, I think the the Maimonidean answer that that was the purpose of standardizing the prayer book mm. uh, so you don't have people saying whatever comes into their head
2: uh
0: right, we don't so we don't pro- we don't project we we won't project our own and ideas
1: that, that if you want to speak to god there are ways to do it there are times to do it uh there are contexts uh, in which you can do it and uh it's more or less regulated uh but look if you believe as he does that the torah is valid for all time uh then you can't avoid the, the the issue of sacrifice you'd have you'd have to you'd have to go back to that uh, I suppose you wouldn't give up the prayers but uh, you would still have a temple cult uh, that was doing the uh, sacrifice you'd still have a scapegoat on uh, Yom Kippur etc cetera, etc cetera. now the the further question about a third temple. Uh, and here, I uh, i don't want to offend people, but uh, I, I, can't, I have to be honest with you. A temple is still a structure built with bricks and mortar and stone. And even if it's the temple in Jerusalem, it to me, it's not a substitute for what goes on in our own minds and in our hearts it's still a physical thing result it, it it can uh inspire worship it can inspire uh an attitude of reverence uh, perhaps an attitude of repentance all, all of that's fine but it's still a physical thing and this is a religion ultimately that's focused on something that's not physical and can't be uh, understood or even imaged in terms of brick stone wood mortar etc so i there there is a part of me that is against making things too concrete uh this is the maimonideana and you, you you don't want to go too too much in the direction of concreteness. what's available to and to the set what we can see touch Hear and smell. We have that. Uh, uh, you know, we, we I mean, look uh, at uh, Abdallah, you know, we, we have what you can smell, we have what you can see, what you can hear. Synagogue. Right. But uh, these things are there, but they're under control. It's not, ultimately, this is not a religion based on the physical senses.
0: So I think to add to that, you know, today what people turn the Western Wall into is kind of like, in a way, some people treat it like an idol and they're writing notes. And they're
1: not not in a way. I think for a lot of people, it, that's exactly what it is. Your prayers
0: are going to be more powerful if you're standing there, even though that's not even the temple.
1: I it, it This is not Judaism as I understand it or would like to see it. And in fact, you know, there is a sign of, in front of it that says, and I think a lot of people have come to believe uh, that God somehow dwells within uh, these stones. Well, no, no, I'm afraid not. God doesn't dwell in anything that's physical.
2: That's right. just
1: the wrong way of understanding Judaism.
0: Right. It's a place that we sanctify for God's place, right? it's It's,
1: it's, it's a place that has historical significance. If that's what you're arguing, fine. Well, it's a place that we can come together to uh, understand and remember our past.
0: But and, the temple, but, the temple itself, which is obviously different than the kotel, um, right. I think that you know the issue, the 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 problem that it would solve is, or it should solve, because again, it didn't even solve it back then a lot of the times, but it should solve the issue of the leadership or the Kohanim, you know, should be able to keep people in line for the most part. That's the idea. It's not just people going to a building and worshiping the stones in the building. They're That's actually, right. you're going so to have just to... sort of what I there. was
2: trying to say earlier. Yeah. Right.
0: They're, they're, in a different, different
1: way. In a different way, yeah. It so easily becomes against They're praying to the stone or certainly looks that way. And they think that because they're standing there, look, uh, uh, again, I don't want to offend anybody, but uh, I think you can be as close to God if you are standing at the hotel or if you are standing in Times Square or on State Street in Chicago or Hollywood and Vine or and anywhere else on this planet. It's a question of what's going on in, in your mind and in your heart. It's not a
2: question of where you are physically right it can't be. hundred percent, that's a fact and and you're you're that that's the the truth. The question is I I'm looking at it from two angles actually. one, and I'm actually I remember in your book No other Gods, you sort of touch upon this, how the human condition where it's almost impossible for us to be, complete angels, in ter- when I say angels, I'm saying that, you know, I'm saying right. clean, right? There's going to be always an aspect of human nature, even at our best, maybe, there's, there's going to be an aspect of human nature that is going to need that right even though we shouldn't right Understand. like you know we should all it should be the way you're saying it, it ought right. to be the way you're Look,
1: it. i i very <laughs> hard for me to have a spiritual experience on in Times square and that, yeah. uh, yes. I that it's much easier in a house of worship uh, uh which is uh there is beauty uh there's art and architecture uh the presence of the torah uh, the ability to uh, bow or, or take my talid and, and kiss the Torah. Uh, so Yeah, all of this is uh, is important to induce reverence, study, yes. repentance, yeah. all the things that this religion says that it stands for. But in the end, uh, it's not a physical thing.
0: Yeah, yes. you mentioned you mentioned in your in your book, uh, Northern Gods. Now that Benzi reminded me, I, I believe you said something to the effect of um, fighting idolatry. You, it, it's almost like you have to you take one step forward and then two steps backwards in yeah. fighting idolatry because, like, you have to some like we have to do rituals, but then these rituals could become, in a way, like like uh, idolatrous. So right. we have to kind of walk it right. back.
1: I used to say, you know, uh, when I was on the board of directors of the synagogue for the Torah service, uh, have we paid more attention to the uh, bringing the Torah out of the ark and the hakapah, spreading it around and kissing it and bowing to it and uh, putting it back and all the Have we paid more attention to that than we have to the message? That the this week's Torah portion is supposed to be teaching us. Uh, and if we have paid more attention to the silver crowns and the the uh, robe, the way it's dressed and the jewels and the so if we've done that we it, it, we've missed it and again I don't it's not that I want to get rid of the Torah service. Of don't misunderstand me. Absolutely of course, of course. I enjoy it as much as anybody. It's important, let's keep it. But let's ask ourselves what the end of this is supposed to be. Yeah. It's yeah. supposed yeah. to be an experience problem. of learning, of study, of reverence, or again, of repentance. In your book
0: yeah. uh, in your book thinking of the about the Torah I believe that's the book you were mentioned in your I think it was in the introduction you mentioned that the Torah is a book of philosophy foremost because it points to a um you know any any work of philosophy has to point to an ideal right um and it has to point to kind of a an age that you know uh, an idealistic age so um I think you really captured that in in what you presented tonight
2: I hope uh, so. I hope so. I want to add one thing, two things, actually. Um, one, uh, I was thinking about it right now. Um, so you're you're correct, right? That the temple should not be an end of itself, an end in itself, which is essentially what, Professor, I think you're trying to say, is that the temple is not an end within itself, right? And everything has to lead to the ultimate goal. But now I'm actually thinking about it and what you said actually earlier in the podcast that for the Rambam, the temple in isolation is not what the messianic age is. You mentioned that for the Rambam, the messianic age is a time of learning, of study, of, of, of men um, of, uh, of devoting their time towards uh, using their, their capacities towards knowledge of God if that is going on simultaneous with the temple, then actually the risk of the temple is by default neutralized.
1: Agreed, if that's going on. Now but keep in mind though that uh, for the Rambam, uh, the temple is an instance of God's, it's made, God is making a concession to human fallibility, okay? So, uh, for example, the, uh, in the Torah, the Mishkan, you know, you raise the question of why does a monotheistic God need all this gold, all this jewelry, uh, silver, uh, fine linen, seal skin? You know, why does, why does a monotheistic God need all of these accoutrements
0: to channel to, our energies.
1: To, to be uh, worshipped. I mean, you know, Moses, let, let's be clear on it. Moses didn't need that when he was alone with God on the mountain, didn't need a house of worship, didn't need gold and jewels and uh, uh, fine linen or anything of the sort. Uh, the the, uh, the guy who's going to put on the uh, the jewelry and the rings and the turban and the is Aaron not Moses okay so you you have even in the Torah this idea uh, of uh, pure worship which not every human being can achieve and God uh, in a sense making a concession okay you knew in Egypt uh, the gods were worshiped in these luxurious places therefore uh, if you want to worship me uh, I'm gonna uh, give you the uh, blueprint for a luxurious place as well. Uh, similarly, with Solomon's, uh, but these are these are concessions to human fallibility.
0: Right, right after the golden calf, they they build the Mishkan. and and that's a way of God that goes with Maimonides' thinking that God gave, like, kind of channeled our energies towards. He I'm understood. Sure. You can't eliminate this need. Let's transfer it towards, you know, something positive.
1: Exactly. The golden calf is, uh, by definition, is made of gold. Uh, But look, when we get to the description of the Mishkan, look at how much gold's been estimated that to build this thing would have required 2,000 pounds of refined gold. So gold plays a central role in both... In the one case, we have the uh, uh, ultimate form of idolatry, which angers God. And in the other case, what we have is the place in which God wants to be worshipped. Uh, so you got to be careful here. It can't be turned into a golden calf. It, it can't. Uh, and yet... There is the possibility of doing that, as I think this these passages of the Book of Exodus make clear.
0: I think I think some of the problems that persist today is that we're, people are always trying to kind of crown the next Messiah. We see that with Chabad. We see that with there's some Have people who are starting to think this guy in Israel, the Anuka, is. Have you know.
2: heard of him, Professor Seeskin? <laughs> oh no, but
1: I will tell you, uh, I was on <laughs> a, television in Chicago once. They asked me whether uh, the, the Rebbe, whether Schneerson was the Messiah, and I said, "Look, he's a great rabbi and he's a learned man, and you know, there's much to learn from. But the Messiah, no, right. not all of his followers were happy with that."
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, I think I think one of the things that people do today also, which is. I see it often. Whenever there's a tragedy that hits, you know, a community, a lot of people will, will cry out for the Messiah, but they'll conflate the Messianic age with Resurrection and Olam Haba. It's like one big Mishka Bible of ideas that, that they'll just be...
1: Well, Maimonides it, are very it, clear to keep uh, the, the days of the Messiah and uh, the Olam Haba are separate. Uh, In the days of the Messiah, again, he thought the Torah is still valid. Torah is valid for all time. In fact, the whole point of the Messianic Age is now we can observe the Torah fully without interference. Uh, In Olam Haba, the Torah is no longer valid. I mean, there's no eating, there's no drinking, there's no sexual contact in, uh, in Olam Haba. So uh, the Torah is not a valid thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Literally, lo he. You know, <laughs> That's lo bashamayim he.
2: Um, professor, uh, before we go, I wanted to just mention that um, the whole second half of this convo. I know that a lot of people listening, like you said, you didn't want to offend people. And I know that, like you know, some people are going to be listening, and they'd be like, "Oh, we shouldn't need a temple. We do need a temple." And, you know, I, I always, I, I want to go back to a statement from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, which I think is really important, because there is a tendency that we have to sometimes suppress our inner sensibilities. We every every single person has an inner sensibility, right? Your inner sensibilities. You, you you don't see why there would be a need for a temple. It's an inner sensibility that you have that, that, that's developed within you, right? We all have that in different realms and different aspects of, of Torah. And OK, so I think that a lot of people are so focused in suppressing the inner sensibilities. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says something which is, in my mind, brilliant because he's actually letting you know that you don't have to suppress your inner sensibilities. And and he, that's not a problem because what he says is, faith is living with doubt. Faith so is living with it. doubt, yeah. which means that that that, you, that our inner sensibilities sometimes are going to doubt certain things, which our very faith uh, is is gravitating us to underst- or to to believe and understand. And that contradiction is not a problem. That is what faith is, yeah. the faith that you know, I have a certain... He says, it, he says it's the, cur-
0: the courage to live with uncertainty, actually.
2: The, sorry, I apologize. The courage mm-hmm. to live with uncertainty. I apologize. I didn't get that. I, yes. I am
1: absolutely with you on this. Uh, right. Unfortunately for some people, uh, Jews included, faith becomes a question of dogmatism, of closed-mindedness, of and of intolerance. Yeah. Uh, that's really not uh, what it's supposed to be. I don't always like the word faith. Uh, you know, let's go back to Maimonides again. His, his masterpiece is called The Guide to the Perplexed. But what a lot of people don't understand is that he, A, says quite clearly he cannot resolve every perplexity. He, he nobody can. No human exactly. being can clear up every perplexity. And in fact, uh, there are several pa- places in that book where he himself says, "I'm perplexed. I, you know, I don't, I've worked myself into a problem, and I've tried to show you what can be said on both sides. And here's the evidence, and so on, and the the proof text." But to resolve this whole thing, uh, he can't. So uh, I think what he's trying to say here is uh, pretty much what you, you, you've you said. Um, we're not going to resolve everything. We don't have to, and we couldn't even if we wanted to. Uh, there is room for doubt. He had doubts
0: uh you know bertrand russell bertrand russell has a great quote that the whole the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves and wiser people are so full of doubts
1: that's right that's right why according to maimonides is moses the wisest person who ever lived and at one point he says because moses more than any other human being recognized the limits of human knowledge
0: yeah. and
1: uh, it, it saw that there were limits to what we could know. and of course there's also uh, if he refers if i take a little more time famous rabbinic parable for rabbis who enter pardes uh, I don't know how you would, uh, the uh, garden or the... The uh, orchard, yeah. Orchard, orchard. Garden, yeah. orchard, whatever. What happens? Uh, one uh, goes insane. One uh, commits suicide. One becomes an apostate. Only a Akiva goes in and out and holds himself together. Why, says the Rambam, why is that? Because only Akiba recognized the limits of what he had and stayed with him.
0: Right, he didn't look. Moses Moses famously turns away from the burning bush. Right,
1: that's yeah. right. So the, the elders of Israel rushed in. Moses, with his usual humility, looked the other way. Absolutely right. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with doubt. There's nothing wrong with humility. There's nothing wrong with recognizing that there are questions that we can't fully really get an answer to on the contrary there's everything right with them <laughs> the way i see it yeah so yeah. Professor,
0: professor uh before we go can you maybe plug You've anything to plug you want to tell anybody about any books coming out or that are out right now
1: uh well the latest one was the thinking about the prophets Uh, I am uh, supposed to attend a conference in uh, Germany in October where I'm going to present a, make a presentation on the Jewish conception of happiness. That was the uh-huh. title and I'm going to say in the first paragraph maybe this should be the Jewish conception of unhappiness uh, <laughs> and I uh, have prepared a long essay on this uh, it will be published probably somewhere in Europe uh, but that my next project is uh, the question it's also a good question what does it really mean to be happy uh, taking Judaism yeah. seriously What 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 is involved in that? Uh, is this the end of? of is this our, our ultimate goal? Is to be happy, or is our ultimate goal something else? How do we define happiness? Of, can I be happy without you being happy? Uh, all kinds of questions uh, arise.
2: That that sounds amazing. Yeah, um, please fun. keep writing, Professor. Please keep I'll writing. Do because... my best. Please keep writing because, no, because, because, professor, you have a certain style of writing that's very unique and that you can take difficult abstract concepts and explain it in a way that everybody can understand. And that is missing. Um, so keep writing. And uh, we always appreciate you. We hope to have you on multiple times, God willing. And uh, may we live to eventually figure out what exactly is going to happen with that temple.
1: okay guys as usual it's my pleasure this is thank you so much just the sort of thing i love to do thank you you.
0: hey guys thanks so much for tuning into the judy's and demystified podcast we really appreciate all your support and your feedback if you want to help us grow the podcast keep spreading the word share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.